0: Welcome to the Food and Drink Business Podcast, your on the go bite of the food and beverage industry. <laughs> Welcome to the Food and Drink Business Podcast. My name's Grant McCarran, and today I'm once again joined by Kim Berry, the editor of Food and Drink Business and the host of this show. G'day, Kim. How are you doing today? I'm very well, Grant. And yourself? I am Peachy, and I'm really looking forward to something here. I believe you've got a, a guest with a fantastic name. I know, right? <laughs> <Who are> you. <laughs> today, we are talking to Grant Davidson. He's the Managing Director of leading branding agency, Davidson Branding, Uh, let's see if I can say branding and Davidson any more times than that. Uh, (laughs) Grant has worked with more than 200 Australian and international organisations, including 18 of the world's top 100 brands. He's worked with 20 of Australia's top 100 FMCG brands and nine Fortune 500 companies. Uh, He leads An experienced team of specialists who cover everything from consumer insights through strategy and marketing, design, digital and even organisational psychology. His passion for seeing businesses grow and succeed is best seen through what I classify as his elephantine knowledge of all aspects of what makes us tick and trends take off. Today we're going to talk about some of those trends and the compelling insights that Grant and his team uh, have uncovered. Hi, Grant.
1: Hi, Kim. How are you? And Grant.
0: <laughs> I hope you don't mind me using the word elephantine. That was impressive. <laughs> but, That's a word I haven't heard before, so I've oh, learned something new. I am a fan. Many of our um, many of our guests um, have a similar quality there. I, I must say, I seek I seek you all out because. Uh, your knowledge is as wide as it is deep and it is always incredibly insightful. So we're really looking forward to having a chat today because as we all know, this uh, our FMCG sector is as incredibly fast moving, and even more so at the moment. So uh, we're really happy to have you on board today. Thank you. It's absolutely fantastic to be here. So where should we begin? What are what, is, what are some of the big ticket things that um, that y- you know you're sort of seeing, you know, at the moment with some of the some of the companies that you're working with? Well, I think
1: um, the last. 18 months to two years has seen more fundamental shifts in shopper behavior, in trends than I think I've seen in my whole 30-year career. So um, it's, it's been one of the most exciting uh, uh, periods of my career, which has been fantastic, but it's been a little bit of a roller coaster at the same
0: time as well as obviously working with all these companies, you guys also do a lot of reports and and research into what's happening in that consumer space and and what's effective for brands and and what isn't, don't you?
1: Absolutely. So because consumer behaviour is fundamental to everything that we do, so um, the more it resonates with consumers, the more effective it's going to be. So every year we do um, very specific reports to understand shopper behaviour. So in many ways it's The next best thing to our crystal ball to understand, well, next year, what are going to be the key drivers of uh, shopper and consumer behaviour so that we can develop brands and align them with those. Uh, those emerging behaviors so yeah we spend quite a bit of time and I absolutely love them I'm fascinated with consumer behavior understanding how people think and how that influences what they do and how you know uh, a logo color um, a new product a shape of packaging can actually have a you know I'd say profound but a significant impact on what people choose and what they buy and what they feel you know loyal to and um, it's absolutely fascinating
0: Are you seeing, particularly, I guess, in light of COVID, uh, some big shifts that really people, that you weren't expecting?
1: I think, look, many of the the shifts and changes are to be expected, I suppose, but what none of us um, expected was how fast the acceleration and the uptake of some of these trends. Like, every time we do these trend reports, look, sometimes... From one year to another, it's a little bit, you know, ho-hum, it's the same old because fundamentally um, consumer behaviour doesn't change. Like our behaviour takes generations um, to change But that um, conventional wisdom is now out the window because what we've seen in the last eighteen months is a perfect storm of different influences that have um, completely changed a lot of what will happen in the food and bev space. Um, You know, COVID obviously is one major catalyst for change. I mean, it uh, forced us, forced us, it um, caused us to really rethink our. Health and well-being. So, therefore, what we eat and what we drink. In in that respect, um, you know, our values in terms of buying local. Um uh, and even now for many of us, um, our budget, so what we spend and, and being very frugal with our spending. So COVID has had a big impact. Oh, the other thing with COVID, the upside of COVID is that we rediscovered cooking and with cooking came fresh ingredients and like, wow, this tastes better. Hey, all the family get involved. Um, we've rediscovered the f- fantastic benefits of home cooking um, and plants and natural ingredients. So, you know, COVID has accelerated a lot of those trends and then you've got the other um, factors that have Push that even further. So, you know, millennials, now the youngest millennial is a main grocery buyer at 25. uh, And the other factor is the oldest Gen Z is now 24, almost in the sweet spot of an MGB. So those things on top of COVID have just accelerated um, so many trends uh, and it's which has been really exciting. I've loved watching it and you know, I'm dying to see what happens next year.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, it is. It's just fascinating. It's like the, the ultimate sort of societal study, isn't it? The, you know, what we eat and how we eat it and, you know, what we want to put into our bodies. I mean, it's fascinating. Um, I, I need us to just back up a little bit and talk about, how millennials are now what did you what did you call them like a major the major financial spire uh, i'd like to
1: say the most influential market of, of all oh, the because they gosh are, okay they have, talk
0: to me about millennials then <laughs> <laughs> come on <laughs> so that's,
1: that's the product of our report that is um, about to be released next week so i've been immersed in all things millennial for the for the last you know two or three months, really understanding their um, profile, their shopper behaviour, the purchase drivers. So, I'm, um, I might be a bit of a bit of a stats um, boffin, but uh, <laughs> but I've been fascinated by some of the numbers. <laughs>
0: <laughs> We're here for it. We're here for it. <laughs> so, what are what are some of the key takeaways of of what you're finding?
1: lots of things but I suppose um, one of them is in terms of one in every three consumer dollars spent comes from millennials so they have a fair chunk of of that wallet Uh, I think the other factors that really change in relation to what brands need to look for is they're infinitely more pro-social than any other group so hence the um, growth in um, plant-based because of the um, animal welfare aspects Uh, I think we found was that 96% love to shop local so what we're going to see is a move away from major um, shopping strips and into their local community. And that, like, 96% is a huge number. Health-focused, uh, they prioritise health food. Um, uh, what else is it? There was a number of amazing, compelling stats
0: I mean that's another whole interesting thing, isn't it? The the concept of moving away from, um, you know, the big store back down to the high street. That will be fascinating to to see how that will how that will play out. But also for a lot of uh, a lot of the particularly, I guess, the bigger um, food and beverage manufacturers to meet what that market wants in terms of you know where is this product made and 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 who's making it and um, that's that's going to present itself you know pretty front and center isn't it
1: absolutely and the other thing gen z coming hot on the heels of uh, millennials will accelerate a trend away from big global traditional power brands because that generation um, don't like to be defined by tradition they don't like to be defined by big brands and what they do is they love discovery brands they love boutique they love um you know small discovery brands and what that will do is accelerate what's already starting to happen is a fragmentation of brands you know even we've done a lot of work over the years in the cereal space and the cereal aisle used to be uncle toby's you know there's there's three or four power brands occupying big chunks of the space if you go in there now it's it's so fragmented with all these smaller brands with a couple of facings and organic and and it's become you know it's giving consumers lots of choice but what that's obviously if, if you're a big weak mix brand is that's um, you know reducing and reducing and reducing your share of the market. Uh, good for consumers, not so good for the big um, big power brands, unless they start creating as they've done, um, some sort of breakaway brands and some little boutique brands that target those very specific niches and don't appear like a big monolithic um, power brand.
0: Right. And does that give more scope for smaller players to come into the into the big market? Or is it going to be one of those cases where you're just getting the big players just creating these, you know, these um, separate brand faces that, you know, can appeal to that sort of market?
1: It will definitely give rise to um, what will occur out of this last 18 months with businesses who then have the entrepreneurial um, seizure, if you like. And um, and, and start as part of the book, the e-myth was all about the entrepreneurial seizure. Um And what will happen because of uh, digital technology, meaning that it's a level playing field from a marketing point of view, you can at low cost market effectively because it's targeted, it's lower cost. So you'll find a lot of startups will grow significantly and become mainstream major brands um, faster than their predecessors that took. You know, fifty to one hundred years to, to build a ubiquitous power brand. So we will see, you know, lots and lots of brands. I'm already seeing, you know, go to in the beauty space has come from nowhere to be Mecca's absolute number one selling brand out of all their global brands. You know, you see, um, Gem, the other beauty product that's gone from startup. Uh, to, you know, a really big successful brand with a sort of cult-like following. So, we're seeing lots of startups that will become hugely successful in a really short space of time.
0: Yeah. And is there scope for those brands? Because I know I was talking to um, the founders of a, of a company the other day called um, Ronan Culinary Hub. And they actually started, he was making a chili oil for his family he would make it and his professional daytime job dried up with COVID and he was making this and anyway he went to the post office to post all these things off to his family and he had one left over and he by this you know he knew the guy he knew the guy in the post office and he said oh I've got a jar left over do you want it and then this guy came back and said I want to buy 10 jars off you and so this side hustle he's now it's Now a business, and he and they've also he developed um, a soy sauce based sort of um, seaweed drink, uh, not drink, sorry, um, condiment. And he was talking about how he said, "We don't. I don't want to be in a supermarket. I don't want to be on a shelf somewhere. I want to have that contact with my consumers through my online. I want to. I want to build that community through my my e-commerce sort of strategy." And build that way, not. And is that something? Is that something you're seeing more of as well? Yeah, it's an interesting um,
1: conundrum that a lot of smaller players face. Where you hear quite a bit, I don't want to be in mainstream because it, it will, you know, be a sellout. But then you have the others that discover that you know if they want, if they have aspirations of being a really big powerful, there is no other way to get that amount of reach than in major grocery. Um so what they find is there are some who <laughs> um who say, look, we don't want to grow that fast because it is, you know, if you get national distribution as a startup, you better hang on tight and get ready for the ride because the sheer volume that you have to produce um is, is phenomenal. So often it's a good stepping stone to say, from startup to selling online is a great way because you start to get a sense of the e, e-, e- com and, and um, fine-tune things, then moving to um, independence. So, therefore, it's small, manageable. And then once you've got that sort of critical mass and volume, then you can step into one, if not both, of the major grocery players. And that is that is where you get unprecedented growth and, and scalability. So,
0: yeah, think
1: the steps here.
0: I was wondering about that, whether it's just a brand maturity sort of process and that you do sort of reach a point where eventually you go, well, actually, if we do scale it to this, then, you know... I don't know. But then, yeah. Um, let's talk a bit more about that because I think that was one of the big um, changes or the, the, one of the trends that really sped up in the last sort of 18 months is that online um, e-commerce uh, market. What are you seeing happening in, in that realm?
1: Uh, well, that's the kind of proving ground for all of these People with this, you know, entrepreneurial spirit to start their own brand, and and another byproduct of COVID is if those have unfortunately lost their job, then that dream, that idea of that product that they've had for the last two, three decades, they go, well, now there's no excuse. So we're finding a lot of those. We're also finding people who are just rethinking their future and saying, look, life's precious. You know, these events make me refocus on that. Do I really want to be doing that job that I've done for 20 years that I don't like? You know what? I've always wanted to do that. So I think you've got those that were forced into it, those that see this is a now reassessment of my life's goals. So the combination of those two mean there'll be a lot of startups and a great and easy way to start up is, uh, I'd recommend, is online because you can start small, you can test it get the hang of it, start to build up your production before you then go, go to the next step. But you can also, you get a one-to-one engagement with customers. So it's a good way to learn what, what people like, what they don't like, people comment. Um, and you can, whereas in grocery, you're kind of you know, a little bit arm's length from, from consumers. So I think it's a really good good space.
0: And what about... Uh, In terms of, say, a company looking and and working for that e-commerce market, do the same rules apply in terms of their branding and what their packaging is like? And is this creating another whole space for opportunity or change?
1: It's a really good question and one that I've been focusing on and um, thinking about for the last uh, sort of six months where... I think when you're selling online, you don't have to comply to the same, I guess, supermarket FMCG uh, criteria of shelf standout, information hierarchy, checkboxes, because in a supermarket, the average consumer is navigating, you know, 30,000 SKUs in 30 minutes. That's 1,000 SKUs a minute they've got to navigate. Um, so it has to comply to some very specific sort of functional aspects. Online, you don't have to. It can be just beautiful um I was going to say, beautiful and sexy, you know, if packaging can be can be that. Uh, and so what I think it will happen is those online brands that don't have to comply with FMCG um, conventions can do amazing, beautiful pack form, pack design. So consumers will start to buy these products and, and fall in love with these products and then expect that the products they buy in the supermarket look the same. So I think what that'll do is that'll force, uh, and you're already seeing those new players in categories uh, throwing out the old category conventions and doing things that are new. So I think what will happen is you know, maybe it will take five years or more, but the, the um, nature of conventions of packaging will change quite dramatically and they'll be much more beautiful and um, and have more you know, kind of shelf appeal in terms of at home shelf, you know, pantry appeal and table appeal uh, than having to fight as a functional aspect on um, supermarket shelf.
0: That's, that's really interesting, isn't it? Because then – does that in a way it can also then give more scope for these companies that are appealing to, you know, millennials and Gen Z who are much more focused on ethical qualities of these products as much as what the actual product is. That things like perhaps packaging that is coming from a more, you know, it's it's either made from recycled materials or it's recyclable or compostable, or there are very clear instructions on it about how you can reuse it or push it into that circular economy when we're talking about the sort of sustainability and particularly in the space of packaging, that um, they can almost do that in a potentially in a more engaging way because they're not losing so much other surface area of their packaging to all of those conventions that, um, you know, are classified as necessary if you're sitting on a supermarket shelf.
1: Absolutely, and there's a couple of benefits as well from, a, I guess, an um, environmental and ethical point of view with not having to go through major grocery. Um, so one is without having to comply with shelf stability, uh, the product can be fresher and have less preservatives. I mean... Products that have to go on shelf have to last for a particular period of time. They just can't get around putting in aspects that preserve it. Uh, when you're making, dispatching, the product can have less in the way of preservatives and be more pure and natural. Uh, but thing, Kim, what we uncovered in the last report is the acceleration of um, ethical and sustainable in, in consumer behaviour, which, again, driven by um, millennials and, and Gen Z. Uh, we found 85% of Australians say that... Um, they choose products based on their corporate um, social and environmental policies, um, which 85% in market research of Australian consumers
0: is huge. It's taken so long. <laughs> That's all I can think is that, you know, we were talking about this in the 80s, you know, and there was, there was some of us, some of us idealists have been carrying that torch for so long. It's like, oh, finally, 85%, finally it's
1: huge and and the other aspect we found is and this is something that's been lacking for years is consumers are ha- happy probably the wrong term consumers are willing to pay a premium for products that are more environmentally friendly and sustainable so the first thing that's occurred for years and years and years is consumers want it. They'll pay a premium for it because we know that more sustainable products cost more and that was always a barrier for companies to do it. But now that consumers will pay for it, therefore more companies will do it. And as more companies do it, that reduces the cost, which therefore makes it accessible to more people. And I think we'll find that will be that virtuous cycle that will um, hit in a fantastic way for more sustainable and environmental um, and ethical products, which I think is absolutely brilliant.
0: There's no downside to that. I think that stuff, like looking in, in that space of that corporate responsibility, it also ties in, I think, correct me, please, that to the rise of wellness and better for you and the health sort of aspects of what consumers are now wanting from you know, that trend as well. Is that, is that fair?
1: Yeah, I think they're intertwined. I think um, general health and wellness and the wellness of you know, the the planet are intertwined. I think those that are generally more um, conscious of their own health are going to be more conscious of the environment because, again, an unhealthy environment has a big impact on our genuine um, physical health and and emotional and mental health. So they they are definitely intertwined, yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Talk to me a bit about just the rise and rise of alternative proteins and plant-based diets. And are you seeing some particular, I mean, it's obviously trending and it's moving well out of being a fad into just part and parcel of the, of the protein landscape. But what are, what are some of the things that you have heard or you're seeing in that space?
1: Well, this has been a space of interest for me for the last two and a half years, we had a client that was a very early mover in that space, so we did quite a bit of focus groups and research, um, and myself and the researcher, we said, oh, this is one of those trends that's at the very early stages. This will take a decade or more before it will ever become mainstream. I reckon in less than 12 months, it went from a, a niche little trend to a mainstream megatrend, and and we watched and we sort of unpacked why that happened, and it's really interesting. I guess the, the first thing was – focus on more educated um, consumers focusing on their health and wellbeing. Um, so therefore, re- you know, increasing plant-based and reducing meat was one, one option. Uh, then you had this program called Game Changers. Uh, so Game Changers became um, behaviour-changing viral documentary that was the most compelling case against meat that my whole family, we went vegan for about six months, uh, and uh, my, out of the five of us, one of us, uh, my, my youngest son's continued vegan. Um, the rest of us are now falling into that flexitarian. We've definitely reduced our meat consumption. But it is such a compelling um, scientific, and there's always two sides to every you know documentary. You can spin facts in any way. So you had one, there was a health consciousness that therefore chose <gasps> a documentary. No, Grant, I have to interrupt. It.
0: I did see that. I did. Yes, I. Tried. It was at a product launch that I saw it, and um, and I remember now. I remember texting my partner Rob, asked it, and saying, um, "I think we have to become vegan." <laughs> So, yes. So, yes, I do. I'm sorry. We have to just back that up. I did say yes, but, it, oh, wow. Okay. Yep.
1: Uh, so, so, you had Game Changers accelerated that. Then the thing that moved it from being, you know, um, uh, I guess a viral documentary into mainstream was when um, major brands and um, what was the, uh, I've just forgot the name of the Hungry Jacks and their um, Impossible Burger they made it mainstream overnight. So what that did was that that made it accessible, acceptable for everybody and they proved, and look, good, you know, the um, people that have been creating the um, plant-based meat alternatives have focused on the taste and, and it's been hard to pick for years. But what uh, Hungry Jacks did with their challenge in their marketing was they made a huge number of people taste it and go, hey, you know what, I can have the benefits and the health benefits of plant and taste exactly like a burger without compromise. So that accelerated. And then the other major brands get, like Kit Kat got behind vegan products. And um, so these major brands made it mainstream almost overnight. And then again, with COVID on top, with us wanting to, you know, meat's expensive. So uh, reducing our meat um, consumption. And also the perception is that, uh, vegetable-based meals take more time than meat-based meals not sure why that is but uh, we're spending more time cooking so therefore that also decreased our um, love for meat if you like so so I'm sorry stat that Woolworth's report of 48 percent year-on-year growth in plant-based products so huge so that so it's gone from a fringe to Hungry Jacks and um, you know, KitKat making it mainstream to then supermarkets um, making it accessible and mainstream and then that accelerating year on year. So um, that's been a really exciting trend to watch.
0: Yeah, and I think uh, we did a story this week at three of the big international ingredient and flavour companies, so Bueller and Gervaudin and um, I, I think it's Migos or Migos, I'm not quite sure how you pronounce it, but the three of them have actually joined forces and opened their own a new company, like the three of them own this new company called the Cultured Food Innovation Hub and they're opening it in Zurich next year and the whole process, Process of it is about is about you know sort of aggressively progressing the cultured meat component of alternative proteins, and I and up until that announcement, or probably actually up until the last sort of three months or so, everyone I have spoken to about the cultured meat component of that of that sector have said it's going to take the longest. It's going to be about ten years before it's on a scale that you know is on to market and. And all of a sudden, that's like, mm, it's going to be sooner than that. And that's remarkable that we could even be thinking that that's going to happen sooner than a decade, you know, within within the next sort of, you know, five to ten rather than ten or out.
1: Yeah, definitely. It's interesting, I, and we um, looked into that in our last report around cultured meat, and I think, and maybe it's my consumers, overlaying my consumers' viewpoint, so I, I can pellet that meat so so plants that taste like meat. You go great. I'm eating. I'm eating plant that tastes like meat. Hey, that's kind of cool. Cultured meat, uh, maybe just a bit more of a cognitive shift for people to get their head around. So I mean, the the um, younger millennials and the Gen Z are all across it. It makes sense. It doesn't um, affect animals and animal welfare. Uh, it gives you all the ben- you know the health benefits. We need protein. Um, so. It's a no brainer for them, but I'm, I sort of struggle with, uh, I don't know, I can do
0: basically. I know, yeah, but, but I you know, we're the generation where vegan was like a dirty word. That's right. Whereas that's right. now, people, like, it's just. badge of honor now. <laughs> it, well, yeah, but I think, you know, we came, we grew up with vegan products tasting like, you know, shredded cardboard. And that's just simply not the case anymore. And so people mm. are like, oh, well, you know, it's dynamic, isn't it? <laughs>
1: And that's that's why I said, like I've seen more shifts in the last two to three years than I've seen in my whole career, which is um, super exciting. And again, a lot of these trends are early stages. So what's interesting is what happens next year, what will normalise, what will become habit, what will change as just, you know, what will drop off as just being a fad. And then what other new things will come on top and accelerate those. So look, I think next year is probably going to be one of the most exciting years to see how it all uh, washes out.
0: So when a company comes to you, What's, you know, some of your sort of key bits of advice or what are, what, what are some of the key takeaways that they get from you guys?
1: Um, oh, so many. Uh, look, I think the most, the most important thing if I was, you know, to prioritise, number one is define your audience and know them inside out, back to front. Uh, and I think the more specific And targeted you can get with an audience, then the greater the depth of knowledge you can have about what influences their thoughts, beliefs, behaviours, and the more you can target a brand to um, align with those. So I think to find the audience and build everything around it is, you know, lesson number one and critical. We spend lots of time on consumer research, co-creation groups, all that fun fun stuff to get a really good handle on that. Uh, And then the other thing I find is, make it fun and interesting. I mean we're we're awash with choice of brands. And unfortunately companies think that oh, they become very rational. Like in human life, the more fun someone is, the more you want to spend time with them and it's and it's an enjoyable experience. It should be the same with brands. So I think brands that are fun and quirky and playful, we tend to build a stronger affinity with and relationship with and want to spend more, more time with as we do with people so I think expressing that brand proposition in a way that's fun and interesting just to make okay add value by making um putting a smile on people's face
0: yeah oh that's fantastic hey uh what puts uh what puts a kick in your step what gets you out of bed each day
1: um, seeing results. And that's the thing that I love about data. So when we start with, you know, uh, or a client will have an idea and it's just an idea, it's just, you know, and then we we flesh that out and we bring it to life, we make it tangible. And then the absolute icing on the cake is when hundreds of thousands of consumers, you know, dig into their pocket, their hard-earned money, and they buy it over all the others and you see sales spike. And you say that's like the ultimate compliment that people out there love that idea, love the way we've expressed it um, in, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, in millions, um, that just is definitely um, gets me out of bed in the morning, puts the spring in the step.
0: (laughs) I'm sure it does. Uh, And that seems like a great place to uh, put a line under our conversation today. We seriously could talk for about another four hours, I think. I know. (laughs) (laughs) It's just, uh, you know, it's why we love what we do. It's fast moving, it's dynamic, it's engaging. You see, re- you see results, and um, your insights today are just they're just fantastic. So, thanks so much, Grant. Um, we must do this again um, next year when we can actually go. Yes, look at what happened since we last spoke. Yes. thanks, Kim. It's been
1: absolutely
0: fantastic. I really enjoyed it. Fantastic. Grant. Yes, I got. Thank you, Grant and Grant. Great name. Well, thanks, Grant, and thanks, Kim. That's been a great uh, episode. I've learned a lot about what's happening now and what to expect in the near future. And uh, thanks also to our audience for joining us for this episode. Of course, we'll be back in the not-too-distant future with another informative episode, but until then, have a great day. You've been listening to the Food and Drink Business Podcast, produced by Southern Skies Media on behalf of Food and Drink Business, owned and published by Yaffa Media. The views of the people featured on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of Food and Drink Business, Yaffa Media, or the guest's employer. The contents are copyright by Yaffa Media. If you wish to use any of this podcast's audio, please contact us via our website or send an email to editor at foodanddrinkbusiness.com.au. You can subscribe to this podcast via your preferred platform and read all the latest news on Australia's food and beverage industry at foodanddrinkbusiness.com.au You've been listening to a Yappa Media Podcast.